Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of the galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today is a very special episode featuring my conversation with ILM Creature Shop legend, Judy Elkins. Judy is responsible for so many iconic designs and sculptures for Return of the Jedi, including the infamous Yak Base. I was honored to spend the day with her in Austin, Texas, as we went around to different places that had inspired her while growing up. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 157, Judy Elkins. Uh, old buildings down on uh, Red River Street sure. uh, near 6th Street. We used to go junkie down there when, when uh, we'd come to town. And, you know, looking back, we didn't think about it so much, but those were really probably built in the 1840s and 50s. Right. And uh, I'm sure a lot of them are gone now. I know yeah. that some of it is where the convention center is. These are all, yeah, so so these are all marble and these are all yeah, plaster. plaster, right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if she did do... She was very prolific. I wonder if she did uh, send her marble work out to... Uh, someone else to do. Right. I might ask the dozen. Yeah. Are these the ones that are probably in the Capitol? Yes. This one is from Stephen F. Austin. I thought it was Davy Crockett when I was 10 years old. <laughs> I was very impressed. <laughs> do, we, do we know why she moved to Austin? You know, I don't know. I yeah. think they... Because there was a German presence here. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, um, and especially the hill country. My, my, in fact, my great-grandfather came over from Germany around probably 1870. And um, they were around here. They lived in the, he worked on the Capitol as mm. a groundskeeper, a landscaper. Oh, wow. I wonder if he met her. Maybe, she had yeah, these, she was yeah. always installing them yeah. and stuff like that. So when I was about 10 years old, we came here and I just looked at the sculptures and I just said, you know, I want to learn how to do that. Yeah. I really wow. want, want to, <laughs> to do that later. I guess there's, there's something about sculpture that, I guess the three-dimensional or right. the, the tactile that just grabs certain people, right. I think. It's more so than painting or drawing. I mean, at least to me, painting, drawing seems, not attainable is the wrong word, but it is like you doodle as a kid, right? You do. Yeah. But sculpting is so, like, almost intimate. It's so, it requires so much more when skill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A, a very tactile. I was, I had really struggled with life drawing until, uh, until I took sculpture class. Really? Because it just be able to, informing and making the muscles really made it easier for me to draw them. Right. So, because it's really, it's difficult when, you know, in sculpting, you just, you, you sculpt the, the, uh, the figure, but when you're drawing and you have things like uh, perspective, like a hand coming at, at you, and it has to be bigger in the you know, to, to make it look like it's not just a mangled, right. some mangled thing right. in the foreground. And really give it the, that sense of perspective. I think that was something that was difficult for me in 2D drawing. But sculpting, you don't have to deal with that. So. When do you um, start learning? When when do you, like, right after that, are you, like, getting uh, the material, or how do you... I think I did paper mache things at home, and, and also I did, I did do a lot of drawing and um, um, just crayon and chalk and stuff at home mm. and paper and took art classes in the summer ceramics I, I loved ceramics and other kind of craft things we did some of the things we do would be carving carving things I guess kind of like plaster or stuff but I had uh, uh, ants that were I had uh, uh, on both sides of the family I had ants that painted and uh, my aunt Helen actually sat down sat me down and uh, she's the one that brought us here she sat me down and taught me how, a little bit of the, the beginnings of oil painting that was that, that was nice that was really was that her medium was that what she did she, oil painting. Yeah, oil painting, yeah. Uh, what kind of, what, like landscapes or Mostly people? flowers and wow. things, yeah. Yes. Still lifes and flowers and yeah. things, yeah. Magnolias and cool. a lot of magnolias. Houston. Mm -hmm. And what, what did you enjoy doing? What were you kind of like passionate about at a, at a young age? 
Um, art and uh, reading, I, I was encouraged to entertain myself quietly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I, yeah, I drew a lot, and uh, and I think I mentioned I had aunts that were, were artists, and so this was like something just normal to me. It wasn't like a special, like you had to be an artist to right. do art. It's just something everybody did. Oh, right. And uh, so it was uh, just, uh, I enjoyed it. So I, in the summers, I would take art classes if I could. Mm-hmm. And then when for college, I, I just, I wanted to study art. My mother was this teacher and she says, okay, we'll just get a teaching certificate. So you'll have something to fall back on, you know, cause she was very understanding, but, but it's, uh, but you know, being an art teacher that looked like the best job in the world, it was not, <laughs> but, but my teach, my art teachers in high school, they just looked like they were having a fun time. Of course, we were very respectful students. Sure, yeah. We didn't um, throw clay. Right. We did not tear things up. We did not steal things. Right. We, we just, we, we cleaned up after ourselves and behaved ourselves and I thought that was that all schools would be that I'm way sure all kids are like even that. junior high yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, for me I always uh, we used to come visit my aunt here and I, I always loved Austin so much and then um, and half of my high school class came to UT so it was like high school without parents so <laughs> <laughs> where were you in Houston where yeah where I you grew were up in Houston yeah. Bel Air High School oh, okay yeah the Dennis Quaid was uh, I, um, oh. I knew I, I had some mutual friends. I uh-huh. didn't really know him very well, but he was—he graduated the year behind us. I used to—I uh, was studying a, a life-drawing sculpture, and, right. and the anatomy is, is so perfect on these. Uh, wow! Yeah. These guys, really, I see the muscles and everything. Right. These are so interesting. These mermen with their little. Yeah, yeah. and like whatever <laughs> their hair is so like are those. Antlers, yes, are they, yeah. yeah. And they're holding on to the horses. And their uh, ears are pointed a little bit. But yeah, look at the uh, the sculpting on the anatomy there. You can see all the, the muscles on the ribs and the right. pectorals and the, uh, it's just really steady. It's kind of easier to study this on a sculpture than on a living, moving yeah. person because it's perfect here right. and, and not moving. things it was so easy for him like like a foot I remember watching him just take his tool and just kind of do somebody's his foot and he just kind of went in for the arch the arch of your right. foot and then boom 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 over the toes and back back boom 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 with uh, the toenails and it was just it was just quick and then uh, well he kind of you know quickly carved off the, the arches of the, the foot and then for the toes it's just um, amazing he was so good at it Which classes did he teach at UT? Life drawing and sculpture. And I, had, I had him for at least three, I think three years of each. So I, so I was an art major and I uh, took extra classes to teaching certification. So I was actually a studio art major with a teaching certificate. And I, I had a lot of hours over my, my degree. My mom, when I was in high school, she started uh, working on her master's degree. And so we would go up to Sam Houston in the summertime. Uh-huh. And uh, when I, after I graduated from high school, I was able to take classes in the summer. So I took photography and life drawing and whatever, ceramic. They had, they had a re- some really good ceramics up there. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit as well. So I got out of and I just I just took whatever classes looked like fun, and I felt like you know I was training to be a teacher, and the more things you know how to do, the the better it is for right. your students. And so I wasn't really didn't really have a specific goal. I just but I I guess I took more sculpture and life drawing than anything else because I really enjoyed it so much. And got out, did teach for three years, had enough of that. Other influences, 1973, some 50 years ago, this this summer. 
I was back in Houston, um, had been in, in Austin and, and uh, came back, went back to Houston for, for the summer and was very bored, and I found a film class at Rice University Media Center, and so I took that, and they had a three-day seminar with the Oxbury Animation Stand, and that was just, I, I just was intrigued with it and wanted to learn more about, about that. Uh, we did little films like cutouts and kind of stop-motion kind of things and then cutout animation, and so after I graduated and went back to Houston, I um, continued to take the continuing education classes at, at Rice Media Center, so that was my training. We didn't have CalArts or, sure. uh, you know, anything like that in Houston, but the uh, the Media Center was, was more like experimental animation. It wasn't so much character animation. It was more like uh, art that moved, kind of, right. and graphic, kind of related to graphics and that sort of thing. And uh, so I made some really horrible little films, but <laughs> but I learned how to use the Oxberry, so I was right. excited about that. And so after I decided to leave teaching, um, I got jobs doing uh, slides and film strips, which mm -hmm. was I wanted to learn more about the lab processes and professional things. I didn't want to just the movies that we the films that we looked at. Uh, the teacher would say, "Oh, this you know this artist, uh, this animator, he's he's using everything he knows about printing and cutting and printing." And I thought, well, I want to know about cutting and printing. Right. I, what? Yeah, I don't want to imitate him. I want to know what he knows. Right. And so, uh, worked for a couple of years in uh, a couple of different places. I processed the color film and uh, did reproduced uh, slides and film strips. Did one one place they needed someone that could do some artwork to mm -hmm. for. Um, when clients needed specific things, I would make the artwork and shoot it. So by 1980, I decided I had gone out to visit a friend in Los Angeles, and I thought, I really want to move out here and mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. And Empire Strikes Back had come out, and that's the one that really made me want to to work in visual effects. Oh, yeah. um, I would read American Cinematographer. Mm -hmm. That's you know what what we had back then. And I wasn't so much interested in the characters, but more of the, the techniques. Right. And I'm, I'm really more of a technical person geek. But yeah, Empire, when I saw Star Wars in the 70s, I had not, I was still teaching school, and I didn't quite know what I was looking at. It mm. was, I, I knew that, I thought, well, that looks like a miniature, uh, uh, and a lot of it was, mm, how do they do that? And the phasers, you know, I could tell that was animated. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't think too deeply about, about it. It was just a fun movie. And then, but when Empire came out, I had been doing enough technical photography to really be impressed with what they were doing optically with the optical printing right. with the snow battle because mm -hmm. when you print with white the emulsion is gone you have to have a really heavy mat to hold out something to put on top of it and you frequently get mat lines right. and they did not there was no mat lines they did not yeah, yeah. or as Dave right. Barry Dave Barry said well I put them where they don't, people wouldn't look for them sure. <laughs> but, uh, incredible. but yeah. yeah it was I was just really intrigued with that and and uh, so I went out moved out to LA and it was actually a summer very much like this one it was very this was 1980 it was 115 degrees. It was super hot. I arrived in L.A. I had a friend to stay with until uh, I got a place, and I arrived in L.A. in the middle of July. The following week, the actors went on strike. So all the, because I was thinking, well, I'll do animation, camera, or slides and film strips. All those jobs were taken <laughs> because the, the uh, live-action camera people were, were right. doing the, going back to doing that to, to make a living. And so I ended up, and I worked uh, at the, the comedy store as a waitress, which was really oh, fun. Right. That was a really, that was, I mean. Who was at the if, comedy store in that era? Oh, Robin Williams, yeah. uh, Bob Saget, mm. um, uh, Jim J. Bullock was, was really funny. Pee Wee Herman, who just passed yeah. away. That's the first time I saw Pee Wee Herman. Wow. He, they had a little showcase show there, and he was, he was not there regularly, but they did right. a showcase with special comics, and that was the first time I'd seen him, and he was, I'd never seen anything like yeah. that. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. 
But, uh, but yeah, that was really fun. You really learn a lot about, I never really thought much about comedy, structuring comedy until then, but Bitsy Shore would, would work with the comics before the uh, place opened up and they would kind of run through and rehearse their lines and she would give them tips on timing and um, just kind of structuring and that made it a lot better. I just thought people would just, the comics just got up and just just were funny, but it's, it really is a very, they really have to, have to plan it and work at it, yeah. work with those it's routines. Really, uh, I, I, a lot of comedians that I've listened to always credit her. Like, she, oh, she's huh. such, like, a foundational mm-hmm. thing for so many generations of mm-hmm. of the, the, the comics that we have, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah, and it's to, to critique, I thought, wow, she's critiquing comedy. How right. do you, how do you do that? You know, right. that's, that's just crazy, but that's, but that's exactly what they need, because mm. they, you know, some would tend to ramble. Right. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, anyway, so I did that and then sent resumes around everywhere. And I guess in a way, maybe the actor strike helped me because if I'd gotten another job, I wouldn't have yeah. sent the resume to Lucasfilm. So. And so, <laughs> and so uh, you got connected with ILM. They they forwarded it up to it was Sid, Sid Gannis was yeah. really kind and uh, forwarded it to um, ILM. And they needed uh, they happened to need someone in the animation department for rotoscoping that could right. operate a camera and draw. Right. So that's and that's that was the requirement. So uh, so I I went up and interviewed and I I wasn't I didn't think I I thought this is like the pinnacle. They're not gonna I don't have enough experience to, to do this. But it turned out I you know had what they needed. Uh, but but I figured well I'll get a tour of the facility and and uh, that'll be fun. Right. <laughs> so I, I was really thrilled to get hired though. So I'm. Uh, and, and your first film up. is Raiders. Raiders that? and Dragon Slayer. Wow. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a, a good two to start on. That's yeah, a, yeah and then and then I just happened to hear about um, uh, that they needed some sculptors for something. This was I guess I was talking to Craig Barron, mm-hmm. and uh, he said I don't know what the project is, but they're looking for sculptors for something. And and he said it was Chris Wayless. So uh-huh. I showed him my photos, and uh, and then they he took them over to Phil. I had, it was just they were small uh, three by fives, and so he and Phil they were apparently they really wanted people like Rick Baker and Rob Bottin, but for the sure. budget was not there. Right. So I was was uh, budget friendly <laughs> and then um, so yeah I did that that was a, that was a real education too I had never I mean I had done sculpting and I had made molds and that sort right. of thing but I hadn't really done a lot of the things like the painting with rubber cement right. uh, in pigment to, that we, we painted the masks with and or and put hair in and uh, right. all those things that was it was really just a, a lot to learn it was really really exciting and we worked closely with, with the wardrobe department after we right. got going the, the wardrobe people moved in and so they were Making the body costumes. Right. Aggie Rogers. Yeah, and Aggie everybody. Rogers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got. I mean, my curiosity is always with the process, especially for Jedi specifically, right? Where you're starting with the concept of a character, and then sometimes that's 2D, and then you take it to 3D, and then it becomes the final mm-hmm. mask or whatever it might be. What was your process would you start with a sketch and then move to three dimension or how did you well I was sort of just like one of the artisans like when you know you get the the people that get the sketch and make the thing so I was at uh, for most of them I was would be handed a a sketch by I think that some of them were one was Joe Johnston Mm -hmm. and then Ken Mm -hmm. Ralston or Phil or um, Chris Wayless and then I was would make them large Uh, that was like for Toothface and Rock Lobster uh, low overhead and uh, I'm sure some others in there and some of them I got a sketch, like the I did the uh, Yasm, I did the maquette for Yasm right. from a sketch, and it was a multi-generational uh, <laughs> Xerox, so right. they had to kind of tell me what was going on. One they called Toadstool Terror, mm-hmm. yeah, was, he was, I couldn't 
really couldn't wrap my brain around what he was supposed to look like. Right. So, and, and he's not my favorite, <laughs> but but it got made. So <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it filled the filled the spot. Yeah. But uh, but Yak Face was one that I designed, and I really, uh, like I said, I wasn't really a sculpt uh, a creature right. fanatic. So. I just kind of took the Sculpey and just started kind of pushing it around, and then then uh, I thought, well, you know, okay, uh, here's a neck, here's a snout. Oh, okay, some eyes could go here. Um, this could, you know, the ears could go here. Um, it needs a nose. Uh, it's going to need a mouth. <laughs> and, yeah. And it just sort of grew from there. And then, then I did the Sculpey, and I thought, well, you know, it would really look better if it had some hair. Right. And it, that just kind of is kind of how it, it's it so came great. about. It's one of, I mean, again... <laughs> The Jedi being so packed with creatures, yeah. and the Yakface really still stands, and it stood out uh, quickly, and it became a, like we were saying earlier, it got um, it got it gets its own like forefront moments almost, like it really is a, because there's a lot that are pushed to the back, and uh, that that really is kind of well, he has big eyes and a big he's big, he's got yeah. a big face and big eyes, so he he stands out uh, as a background figure. He he's sort of recognizable, right. I guess. And I was kind of thinking about that when I designed it. I thought he, it's going to need some big eyes. Right. And uh, uh, and then as I was sculpting the, the big one, um, the, the full size, um, I exaggerated that more. He looks a little bit different in the the, uh, the full size. Yeah, I think a lot of those background characters, they were, and he's huge too. He's He sits up high. Uh, the neck has, I put some eye holes in the neck wow. yeah. uh, for the person to wear it. And, and I covered those with a little bit of cheesecloth so he could mm. see out of it, yeah. but you wouldn't really see the holes. And a lot of that's another part of the uh, the costumes too is deciding how how it's going to be articulated, how right. somebody's going to wear it. Uh, you probably saw the one with the uh, the red ball jet uh, that Phil made, and that was uh, for for a person to right. to fit into. But yeah, that that was a lot of these. Uh, those are all considerations. It's almost like an architecture project. You right. know, they do those. Now it was really in, inspiring to watch the uh, watch Tony McVeigh and Mike McCormick coming up with the the puppeteering. Mm -hmm. Uh, characters too. That was that was really uh, something I'd never and a process right. I'd never never seen. Right. Yeah. Tony McVeigh's design and his eye for stuff is is so interesting. And I mean, even now, I mean, like with mm -hmm. with Baby Yoda, right? Him, like it's still it's like a it's an evergreen mm -hmm. thing. That I think I mean, it's the entirety of the the creature department. But I think it's it's indicative of of how it can. He he bring his seem to be coming to life. They seem they seem so real that you could talk to them. Mm -hmm. And there was one he was showing me in a book. He worked for the the, the uh, British Museum sculpting mm -hmm. dinosaurs, yeah. and he was showing. I had a picture, and there was two of them together. I went, "Oh man, look at that one! It looks like you could talk to him." And he goes, "Oh well, thank you. That's the one I made." Oh, that's good. And and uh, there they just had such a personality for. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't usually see dinosaurs with personality. Right. And his his did, but that's yeah that he just brings so much to it. I think the um, that's like the true artistry of, of right. for me bringing that to the sculpture. And we we talked a lot about like people you've learned from and, and how you you know you you've been put in these situations and, and and excelled in them, but also been able to like draw from other people's experiences with Jedi, especially being such like a a hodgepodge of creatives, right, of all these different mm -hmm. kinds of people. What was that environment like? How was it collaborative? What, like, what was kind of the goal, at least, because you're having to churn out so many designs and maquettes and, and everything. What was kind of the... 
I watched Dave and Tony and Phil quite a bit just to kind of looked at what what they did and I frankly I didn't feel like my work was as good as theirs I mean but they've been doing it a lot longer but I was also uh, my creatures were going to be background creatures so I didn't feel pressured or feel like a failure or anything because mm -hmm. I knew that they were just you know going to be in the background but um, but I really was was so impressed with um, yeah, especially with Phil, his his um, he was working on Akbar, right. Admiral Akbar, and and uh, and then with Tony, just the detail, and even like with Tony was making some. We did a lot of things with the for hands with the gloves and things, and Tony had made some creature um, hand and had finger the balls or fingernails. It had little the cuticles. You could see the, like mm -hmm. raggedy cuticles, like a bad manicure. You know, they, he needed a manicure, and just that little attention to detail that they would put into these. Right these things and the, te the skin textures and then Phil showed me how to do uh, some of the textures where we made a lot of uh, texture pads with uh, Sculpey or um, mm -hmm. and sometimes we'd pull textures off of things like uh, you know a cantaloupe or uh, right. other other things and, and you could just make a mold and then you, you press that onto the clay and it have, has a, a texture. Uh, we also used for some of the creatures there was one called Hoover that's a little mm -hmm. elephant guy. His he was was carved out of uh, the black scot foam, and his um, skin was from the baby dragons from um, Dragon Slayer. And we would just uh, brush this uh, the glove latex. There were two types of latex that we used. There was the thin glove latex, and there was the um, uh, the thicker latex. And so we'd brush the the glove latex into those molds and let it dry, and then pull it up, and we had skin to to skin some of these things with. And that that got those those molds got used quite a bit. That's really fascinating because again, all the all the movies that are happening around that time, not mm -hmm. just Jedi, are all like kind of formative, mm -hmm. really boundary pushing, and kind of the last gasp at that moment, at least, of like the practical and the creature and the mm -hmm. almost the Henson of it all. Um, because then after Jedi, you you move and do a lot more motion control and you do a lot more of the, what was that process for you? What made you want to make that jump and how did... I had always been more of a camera person, I think, or I, I didn't well, I didn't think I'd do much uh, sculpting professionally. I did do one job with Roger Corman. I can show you some pictures oh, yeah, of some little please. things I did, did yeah. for that. It was uh, Space Raiders. Uh -huh. And uh, that was that was interesting too. That was It's kind of funny to go from Lucas to yeah. Roger Corman. Usually people do it in reverse. Yeah, I think sure. Phil, sure. Phil did it in reverse. Right. But it, there was just more work. I was just trying to keep do whatever I did could to right. keep employed. So it was if I do I do graphics or if someplace had motion control or motion or visual effects. Right. Uh, let's see. I think the first things I did after um, going back to L.A. Um, uh, oh, Dream Quest. I had um, uh -huh. I had met Hoyt Yateman while I was while I was working at L.A. Uh, in uh, in Los, at ILM, I went back to LA for a um, Halloween party, and and I um, some friend a friend took me over to Hoyt's, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he and he and his the Dream Quest actually started in their house, wow. and uh, and so he was um, he showed me his little films, and I talked to him about you know what I was doing and everything. So um, so then when I went back to LA, I, I contacted them again, and and I think my first motion control job was. Um, was called Deal of the Century, and I was just like a production assistant on stage. But the people I worked with, uh, Mike Bigelow and Phil and um, Bill Riley, were very generous and really took the time to show me how to do things. It wasn't like just uh, go go clean this, go sweep this. They really had me running the camera and loading the camera, and and uh, they did the programming. But but um, that was um, that was an easy transition from my Oxbury experience because that was hand cranking the platen and uh, the zoom. I think was 
was motorized, but you did everything incrementally by hand. Mm -hmm. And so then moving into motion control where it was the computer did it was a very easy transition for me. I mean, we are a Star Wars podcast, but but Star Trek and your work on Star Trek is really, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier on the DS9. How did you get involved with Star Trek? And then how did that, because that was a, a lot uh, of time that you've spent in that universe, too. Yeah. Like what? So, uh, yes, that was funny. It's actually kind of a funny story. So I'd been doing, I did, well, I'll move on. I did a lot of motion graphics where I was, mm -hmm. in, me in the little back, black room uh, compositing uh, mm -hmm. graphics with uh, BiPAC mag, which is kind of like optical printing and, and programming the camera. And, and I really was, I really did enjoy that a lot. I did that for many years. And then, and also then I got in, I worked, went over to uh, Klasky Chupo to work and I was able to do some artwork and camera. And I think it was when I was, le it was 1987, so I was at Klasky. I sent a resume, they'd started up uh, Next Generation, mm -hmm. so I sent a resume to Peter Lawrenson, <laughs> and, uh, and they were all staffed up, but Peter Lawrenson kept my resume for six years. Wow. <laughs> and so things, and so back by around 1991 or 92, things were getting really, things were getting tight. The, right. the, uh, the, the graphic, it was really getting hard to find, find a job. Yeah. And so I was doing a little scrambling around. I did some roto work on um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit yeah. and, and then uh, some other miscellaneous graphics things. And I was thinking, you know, I need to call that Peter Lawrence and see if there, you know, if there's anything going sure. on. And then uh, like a, a, couple of weeks later I get this phone call there was a phone on my answering machine it was for Peter Lawrence and so I called him and he says well I have your resume from six years ago <laughs> so what have you been doing oh, <laughs> and uh, so and by that time I had a lot more experience I had uh, done worked on the abyss and total mm. recall with uh, on stage this was stage shooting miniatures on stage mm. which is it's still motion control it's very different from shooting graphics on a motion control graphics camera because with the graphics you're shooting things on a light box and the camera is the same every day you walk in and it's the same camera every day it's not um like oh let's go shoot on this stage with this camera and now we're setting this up for this thing but the the uh, miniatures was actually a bit more more complicated so on some of those I was a camera assistant and some of them I uh, got to do more programming what what were you working on for the abyss which miniatures which uh the little submarine well one of the, some of them was the, the small submarines yeah. uh with the people inside yeah. And that was that was quite quite an engineering feat. A, a gentleman named Dieter made little tiny projectors that actually projected live live oh, uh, footage wow. inside the submarine miniature. Yeah. It would, could hold about 50 feet of film, and so we had to sync that up where the uh, when you you photograph the the submarine moving, and then it would roll a frame in the um, inside the little projector. Uh, DreamQuest did a lot of uh, compositing in camera right. and not so much on uh, they had an optical department but they did as much as they could in camera but that then that was really for those that was the best choice for the shooting those uh, submarines too because uh, we had to shoot in fog mm -hmm. and the smoke and so when you smoke it up and you know if they had tried to put those people in optically later right. it would have been really yeah. difficult so this here it was all one thing but it was really interesting you know when we uh while we're setting up you know we'd smoke up the set before we'd start shooting we had the blue lights and everything right. and you just felt like you were underwater right. in a in this this uh, I, environment I that. So, yeah we shot that and uh, uh matt beck was my my supervisor and he's brilliant uh, he was a he has a uh, master's in physics from oh, wow. mit mm -hmm. and he he had uh, 
been programming on a shot for the, the one of the submarines, and we played back. The, did play back, and I said, "Wow, it looks. It really looks like you can really tell this is underwater. This isn't just floating through the air like a spaceship. It was really. He had it fighting the currents and just the this, just these very gentle." movements that's another true artistry too in in the motion control programming so there's so many so many people that bring so much to the with visual effects back then they didn't really have schools people came from different I mean Alex Funky was a, a chemist and uh, um, and there were people that came from you know, like say physics and uh, uh, some kids came out of film some of them were film school right. people but it was it was um, it was quite but yeah so Star Trek back to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can talk so about the abyss all day. Me, yeah, he called I, me in for a resume. Yeah. Called me in. I met with uh, with Rob Legato and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, had a nice interview with him. I really enjoyed uh, working with with Rob too. He was he's another brilliant uh, uh, visual effects supervisor. They he and Gary Hutzel, who ended up being my supervisor, really came. They they developed so many of the techniques that were used on. Um, um, on the next generation right. for things like the, shooting the stars for these with right. the spaceships and because you really had to grind out the work uh, on a weekly right. bu- schedule yeah. and uh, and they loved to shoot the motion control Gary Gary <laughs> loved you know it, yeah. <laughs> to shoot that. that's so funny because yeah, it's very interesting going from a movie to episodic TV yeah. right and having to come up with n- like new challenges every week for new episodes and new locations and always shifting i guess with ds9 really being kind of like a, a testing ground for a lot of different things what were you working on what were you involved in a lot of your work is emmy nominated like you really pushed the boundaries for television the title my official title was coord visual effects coordinator and part of it was things like keeping track of what's been done and and kind of keeping things on track and uh, preparing work for the artist but I did have a lot more supervisory duties than a normal coordinator right. uh, I, I did all the uh, well basically whatever Gary didn't want to do <laughs> so but Gary Gary's the one that came up with all the designs I remember reading scripts a lot of times and thinking oh my god how do you do that and Gary, oh yeah yeah we just yeah. and uh, <laughs> do, do that but he, he developed a lot of things they were so inventive with things like a lot of the force fields that you see yeah. that kind of zip on that's done with a, a giant, it, like a, a sheet of, of uh, water, and he'd have one of these these um, back vibrators, you know, the, the yeah. big big uh, back vibrators, uh, and just kind of zip, zap it, and then the little shimmer, and shoot the shimmers of water. That's great. And it, and, but those natural things really looked so much better than something that was generated right. uh, g- digitally at the time. At time yeah. right. Now they can really do a lot more digitally. But um, yeah, a lot was um, a lot of those things. I remember one one was uh, there was one uh, shot where I think this was early on in probably the first season. Nog, one of the Ferengis, opens up this match kind of thing like a matchbook, and it's got little creatures crawling in it. And I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna do that. And uh, and Gary says, oh, well, go out and find some seed pods or something, and we'll do a little little uh, put a little drop of uh, UV paint on them, and I'll just do the the you know with the the cookie sheet, and the vibrator. And so I did that. I went out hiking and uh, <laughs> got some some fun little seed pods. It looked right. like they had little legs on them. And so we painted them up, and and he just ran, you know, just did this, and they they ran across the That's sheet funny. pan. But it's just you know this was like a pract. I mean, it's sort of like a practical. Right. A practical optical, yeah. Right. So oh, there was a lot of that. Yeah. And then later on, as we as we progressed, I did a lot more more things. Now on the for the pilot, I got to use my graphics and design the the uh, Cardassian transporter. Right. Uh, Rob said uh, he he says, "Hey, uh, we need a transporter. You want to you want to do that?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." So. <laughs> Uh, he says, okay, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, they all have a different technology, and, and uh, 
uh, it's kind of like like some like a telephone or something. Mm -hmm. So he says, just look at the other transporters, and and they had a whole transporter reel. So I just right. kind of looked through, and I thought, oh, it might, might be fun if it kind of moved like a spiral and kind of spiraled down. And yeah. and uh, so I um, drew up some storyboards, and then we went over to a, a Dan, gentleman named Dan Coney who. Um, we and then we started experimenting of how we how we how to do it and right. so he he did some things with streaking with motion control with the uh, little grain of wheat bulbs oh, wow. lights they're the little light tiny lights the size of a grain of wheat and he pulled streaks off of them and um, and then used it for the uh, the transporter had three elements it was this the splashdown a power pellet they called it with things kind of mm -hmm. circling in the, the chest and then little fireflies it was like if, as if that fell away. So the grain of wheat uh, um, worked for that. And, and Dan created a filter that's a, sort of a fiber optic with fiber optics. He just made a special filter to that we called it the, the curly filter. And it made the really that really made the, that transporter look really special. I, I would love it. You have some sketches. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. To, to oh, okay. Sure. Them. Yeah. This is uh, this is old old work. I'll close a, your book here. Oh yeah, it's it's an audio podcast, but I'm, we'll 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 make it work. Yeah. So to people. And so these were some of the things, yeah. some of the scenes from Raiders. Yeah. This is with the the ghost. I did rotoscoping yeah. uh, for, to make the ghost go behind things. Oh, this is the scene where that it goes from the beautiful the woman to the skull. Yeah. And I just did the uh, there was a, a black mat because of the skull you could see through it. So right. it needed some black behind it. So I did did a mat uh, for that. And then Poltergeist, poltergeist yeah. some uh, uh, more roto work. That was rotoscoping. I don't really have a uh, the I did actually do a little bit of animation on poltergeist. The uh, scene where there's a tornado mm -hmm. and the tornado was cloud tank. And so it didn't have flashes of light on it. And the practical scene had they had flashed to look like light and so I uh, did some flashes to to match that with the to to put onto the, the tornado so it looked like it was fitting into. Were the ghosts and raiders also in the cloud tank, or was that? Yes, that was um, uh, had some silk on it, silk right. rags, and they they some of it was it was either photograph. They ran the the film forward so that it became went backwards, and then they they made it forward in the the optical printer, and I think they also did skip printing. To, to duplicate uh, and offset some of the uh, the frames so that it kind of they kind of overlapped and gave kind of a, a dreamlike more right. dreamlike quality because it was really they really worked hard on trying to figure out what and how to do the ghosts for that right. but yeah it ended up being the uh, silk in the cloud tank very I thought very effective oh, it looks yeah. really and, and filter they use a lot of filters now Richard Edlin had had some filters that he like and then the optical department would also add um, they had filters and they would diffusion and right. a lot of things that they would add to the op the optical department was really uh, very impressive at ILM they and to think when you, looking back the the amount of pressure that they had to be under because they're that's just the last right. the last step right. and and it's uh, any, everybody that has delays or has not met their deadlines has to be made up by the optical right. department. We worked uh, with at ILM. We, we worked so closely with the opticals because we, we would create a right. mats that they would use and and they would tell us what they needed. They were very generous, especially um, Bruce Nicholson and Tom Rossiter would really and, and Mark Vargo too. They tell us what uh, what they needed. Let's see. And then uh, oh, Dragon Slayer oh, did yeah. the mats to make the they, that was a blowtorch. So yeah. And then Star Trek Two, I did uh, some got to do a few phaser phaser oh, shots and some photon torpedoes and things. And then this is the these Here's are the creatures, the yeah. yeah. So that's uh, Rock Lobster, yeah. and that was I think designed by Ken Ralston, and then I mm -hmm. made the the large one. And Phil Phil did the paint job on that, which is I I thought really cool. He, he really, look how in yeah. how 
uh, it really is a lot, like, yeah. with, with the coloring it's really mm-hmm. a lobster like it really is yeah the, making that uh, the dark colors and then uh, those little bits of red in there and it's uh, low oh, overhead yeah this this actually is articulated the, right, uh, the, 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 the tentacle and that's sculpting low overhead oh, that's great here. and uh, that's sculpting yak face yeah, yeah. and then that's Hoover yeah he's about, about that size and yeah. has uh, I don't think he's he just had a little piece, a stick inside. His head just sort right. of moved around. He right. really wasn't wasn't, uh, wasn't really articulated. And that's Toothface. Yeah. What um, did you do for Toothface? Oh, I sculpted the large one. Yeah, right. Chris Wayless designed right. the, 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 the small right. one. He actually had bigger tusks. Yeah. But I, I think, I can't remember. I think I made them smaller because the big tusk was sort of, I think the clay was not really mm-hmm. cooperating. And also I thought, well, uh, you know, looking back, I think it might have been a funnier, a funnier yeah. thing. But at the time it was, I mean, it was already that, this big. Sure. And uh, I thought, well, you won't be able to see his face with the big tusks. So right. I made the tusks smaller, which I don't know if you're supposed to do that. But. <laughs> Uh, here's my favorite. Oh, you here's, like the Yasm? Yes, yeah, so yeah. this is Yasm. And uh, that, yeah, that was from a, a sketch by Nilo Rodas. Right. And um, so I just made the little the maquette there and That's put so the good. hair on it. That's so good. Because I, I keep asking Tom to make this. Oh. But the problem is the the this is so delicate like it's so i mean it, it's it's the it's the the feature of it but you can't like ship this you know, it, oh, so what right. it's like oh do you do you do it in two parts and then connect it mm. later or something because it is it is the best i just love he's funny yeah he's yeah. a funny funny character and, you know i think tom was saying it looked kind of like a lot of little wallace and gromit kind mm-hmm. of <laughs> it's very expressive it's very yeah <laughs> Oh, and this is the dancing girl. Yes. Apparently, she's disappeared. Yes, I, well, I'm so, so glad you have this. It's really beautiful. Like, what was, was this for? Like, one of the dancing girls, or what was the? Yeah, they need. Well, they actually had asked about a bird girl, mm. and they said they said well, now we're looking for a bird girl. So we did um, came up with different concepts. This one, I, I mm-hmm. that was my idea too. And uh, I kind of stole I stole the uh, the two he- two tentacles on the head from uh, one of Phil's. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that looks really cool. That yeah. would be a good thing for dancing to right. you know, swing around. And uh, and so I just made her. I made uh, her hips have a little bit of a wing, oh, a wing to it. That was my bird. That was right. my how I, I decided it was a right. bird would be a bird girl, and just I just covered her with some feathers, and I, that was uh, inspired by a National Geographic. The Mayans had used to make costumes mm-hmm. out of hummingbird feathers, and so and I thought well, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. That was another thing that like you're talking about inspirations. I never really thought about. It. National Geographic says an ins- inspiration mm-hmm. that much before, but th- that's what the guy said. They said, "Oh yeah, go down to the you know you can get them at the the uh, thrift stores. You can get them for like a dime. You right. know, go go get you some National Geographics." And that was a lot of their inspiration yeah. too. So Beautiful. anyway, so that's Bird Girl. That was uh, I think these were the Elephant oh, Man Elephant Man uh, legs. Yeah. They wanted somebody to try them on oh, and walk, walk around in. I've never seen that. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> And that's doing the cleanup work on some of the um, hands. This is uh, making Hoover. I'm make, working on Hoover, and that's uh, Red Ball Jet under construction. Mm. Oh, that's great. Behind yeah. me. Uh, and this is the creature shop. This is um, mm. what it was like. That was just stuff everywhere. That's so great. <laughs> this little room. There was another separate room that uh, was that the. Oh, this is the mold room over here where they did all the, the making the molds, and, and there was a kiln in there for firing uh, mm-hmm. the shram foam. I think there's another another sculpting room over there, and then that's Dave Carson's back. And these are the these are the feet for Elephant Man. They're, they're oh, wow. they can see the foam there. That's yeah. before they put the skin on, okay. on him. That's incredible. Yeah, and that was I think um, Tony was uh, probably working on that. That's incredible. Yeah, and this is um, and this is we had a, one night <clears throat> I made a big pot of um, 
black beans and took some beans in and yeah. and I lived pretty close to the shop uh-huh. and so we had I don't know where they got the candles but we had a, <laughs> uh, we had a we made a party so that's <laughs> so that's Kirk Thatcher yeah. and Stuart Ziff and that's great. Uh, and clown, clowning for the camera there can you grab that magazine this is um, oh yeah because there's I think there's a few that we haven't talked oh. through. Okay, this is, the Smithsonian Magazine is like the, here. You know, here is um, oh the the, green, the, the yellow gold, guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then where else? I think the Yosem is there. Mm-hmm. I love putting Yosem next to Animaniman and and then also the size snoodles because of the they both have those long legs. That mm. is so. This has been truly the best day. And I really, oh great! This has oh, been wonderful. So. Thank, thank you thank so you. much for your time. And oh, it's been story. it's been fun for me too. Thank you so much again to Judy for her time and her incredible stories. Spending the day with her was so inspiring and one of my favorite memories of the year, as well as this entire podcast. Photos of the art we discussed can be found on our website, TalkingBay94.com, and in the show notes. Thank you all for your patience with this episode. It's been six months in the making, but hopefully it was all worth it. In other news, I co-wrote an official Star Wars book. I cannot believe it. The Star Wars Encyclopedia from DK Books is coming out this fall. More info to come. That's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you. Have you been sculpting at all? I haven't done much. I've been really, I feel like I've really lapsed in the yeah. last bit. I did a little bit of, on Deep Space Nine, I got to do a little little sculpting for some projects right. and things, but the Creature Shop really was probably one of the few times I actually got to do it professionally. Right. And, it was, uh, like I think I mentioned, it was just a fluke that I heard about it. Right. I was I just happened to hear they needed some sculptors. I was laid off from the animation department. So I approached Layla's and right. showed him my photos, and, and they decided to hire me. So off we went. <laughs>